Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a narrative documentary or series on Netflix, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into their process and getting answers to questions raised by what I just watched. Today is the third and final episode in our special coverage of the series Heist. I'll be joined by the series executive producer, Nick Frew, who directed the final story in the Heist trilogy, The Bourbon King. A note to listeners, this podcast episode contains spoilers from the documentary, so make sure to watch both episodes of The Bourbon King on Heist before listening on. Suburban father Toby Kurtzinger was bored when he began smuggling and selling bottles of rare and expensive whiskey from the distillery where he worked in Frankfort, Kentucky. But what seemed like an easy way to improve his family's quality of life soon escalated from a booze-skimming side hustle to organized crime. I was the kind of guy that you knew that could get stuff. I was kind of like a mini Amazon. And, you know, if you got to talk to me, we became friends. And you'd say, hey, man, can you help me get this? I'd help you get it. Boom. Helping you get something released a small endorphin that made me feel good. His old saying, you know, the devil deceived me. He showed me something I wanted, and it felt good. It looked good. But guess what? Sooner or later, that bill comes due. Nick, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. I am really excited to talk to you because of all the three parts of this series heist, The Bourbon King, hands down, the most fun part. (laughs) And I'm curious to know, when you came to work on this project, was that your goal? Like, did you want to make this a kind of true crime that, you know, would make people laugh sometimes, that sort of was a little bit more absurd? What were you thinking there? 100%. When we first were ideating this and putting together the materials to pitch Netflix the idea, there was a real sense that we were trying to create a brand that separated itself from a lot of true crime. It's not too dark. It has a lot of wish fulfillment in it. It has some humour, understands there's a sort of absurdist quality to all this, and a sort of sexy, seductive, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's stepped over the line aspect. I think that was a big part of it for us, the idea that this is something that could happen to you and you could sort of step into the shoes of and look out through the eyes of someone who went that little bit further. Yeah. All of the stories come crashing down at some point. And we know that. And we know that there's an intrinsic sort of arc that's baked into them. But we wanted the journey along the way to be as fun as possible. And uh, this episode, in a way, 
was so complicated that it was the biggest challenge to make fun. And that's why we mm. really took making this episode fun seriously and tried to pull out all of the humor and the personality and the, the sense of place and tried to sort of think, you know, what would the Coen brothers do? <laughs> so, yeah, that was a sort of, yeah, how, how we approached that. I really did love the sort of look inside sometimes communities, especially around an industry. There is a culture around that industry. And you really took us inside the whole place where everybody works in the distillery and sort of like that is the whole life of this whole place. It's the thing around which this whole community is centered. And I'm curious about that because it seems to me that although this was framed as this huge masterminded heist, you know, by the media and so forth, it was a very sexy story that really helping yourself to the products in your factory was a super common practice, like for a really long time, right? Yeah, I think that's what I was saying about the, the Coen brothers aspect is the sort of, you dropped into this world where everyone's stealing whiskey and then the big crime is stealing whiskey. And it has a sort of a, a storm in a teacup quality where, you know, and, and then at the end, Everything sort of goes back to normal. Uh, the whiskey's still flowing and the distilleries are doing better than ever. There is a sort of a sense that this could have not happened at all and everything was going to keep on trucking and the good old boys are still going to good old boy. There was a sense actually that like didn't quite invoke it because we didn't really know that it was true, but we were sort of, we liked the idea that this sort of good old boy network was part of what sealed Toby's fate in terms of only getting 30 days but we had no evidence to back that up. But it, it did seem a little bit like, wow, this was the biggest story, but no one really gets hurt. And it's just a wrap on the knuckles and on we go again. Let's keep yeah. making and stealing whiskey. So the rise of Pappy Van Winkle as a popular brand, you know, sort of drove and was like a match that was lit on this thing that was already on fire, right? So it's kind of like what inspired people to steal more, I guess. What is the deal with the value of Pappy Van Winkle skyrocketing? How did that happen when it is a thing that is still being made? I am so curious about that. I understand wine values because of something that was made in 1980. Like there's only so much of it. I do not understand this. What is the deal? Do you understand Dogecoin? Yes. Well, no, it's a scam. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. We place value on something, whether or not it has any inherent value whatsoever. Mm. And once people start getting a whiff of it, people want the next and the best. And, you know, you get into a sort of competitive bidding war out there in the market. But I do think there's there's uh, the Anthony Bourdain, RIP, God bless mm. him, has, uh, has a little something to say for it. And once he's given it his, his seal of approval, it just... And as we said in the show, Mad Men, I think there was a lot of romanticization of whiskey that started to happen around that same sort of time, um, which played into everyone's hands. But it is just an example of collective madness. Yeah. Because it's not worth what it's worth. I mean, I, I haven't actually tasted it, but how good could it be? It's whiskey. How could you not have tasted it when you made this part of the film? Oh, I know. It's, it seems crazy that you're like, well, you, don't, you haven't even tasted the subject, but... We didn't have any, knock it around. And uh, we had other things we needed to spend $5,000 on to get the story done. So uh, I do have a friend in LA who's got a bottle that's waiting for me. And she said I can share the last sip with her. Ooh. So uh, that'll be my wedding present when I get back to L.A. <laughs> a $5,000 sip. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the real central characters in the story is Toby's marriage. I am completely fascinated by this couple. I really think that we could do a part two of this that's just following them around inside their house. Um, one of the precipitating events here also was that he had this 
love affair with softball in these glorious recreations (laughs) with all of these guys that he played with. And, you know, after they got married, she strongly desired for him to walk away from that, which I don't know. Like, how is that connected to him then going into this life of petty crime a little bit deeper? That, That was a question that I found myself asking. Yeah, I think that, you know, with all the episodes, we've tried to identify what are the motivating forces that make these people take that extra step. And in this, it's literally a man having a midlife crisis. It's a man losing his mojo and not having something in his life that makes him feel sparky and vibrant and alive and vital and important. Also, he just, he really enjoyed the minor celebrity of it all. And Mm. this was an opportunity to do something that was risky and fun, team building, got to do it with his boys and got to be (laughs) like the guy. Like he says, it's like everyone knew his name and it just felt good. It was like suddenly everybody wants a piece of me again. And I feel relevant as opposed to being marginalized and just working for the family. So I do really understand it. And I when we sort of identified that internally as like, oh, this is this is a sort of this man is replacing something that was so important to him that was lost in his life it was it was great because we could we could really start to shape the story around that and bring baseball in as this sort of bigger visual metaphor it was a way in to understand why he was having this midlife crisis it had specificity and you know it was dynamics it had the full complement thanks baseball softball sorry (laughs) softball It's not dissimilar. It's a very easy mistake to make. I'm also very curious. I mean, I don't think Toby necessarily comes off as like, you know, for lack of a better phrase, you know, normal guy. I mean, he was using steroids. He was, you know, he sort of was fueled by this like extremely masculine set of pursuits, including using steroids, pumping iron, you know, being very bro-y with his bros. It was surprising to me to see the tenderness with which especially his kids talked about him, especially like when we saw what was inside that safe after that bust. You know what I mean? Sure. hundred percent. I remember the first time I saw the edit put together of the steroid section and I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is before we shot the recreations. And I was like, this has to stay. We have to really double down on this. It's sort of homoerotic, self-congratulatory. It, it speaks to a certain like, oh, we can do whatever we want. We want our bodies to be different. We just buy the illegal things from Mexico and shove them in our veins. It does <laughs> sow the seed for a man that's playing fast and loose with the rules of the universe. But it is true, that aspect of his personality does run counter to what everyone in his family says. He was a great father, attentive, present, generous. For his birthday or just Christmas, he's like, don't give me anything, I don't need anything. He was like, get you something. And then I'd get him something and he would be like, oh, this is exactly what I want. This is so nice, this is nice material. (laughs) He's so funny. (laughs) It's very strange, there's a sort of a, there's a Toby that gets projected and a lot of, in a lot of one set of his actions. And then it, Toby in interview and you realize, oh, this is a guy that's sort of sensitive and full of remorse and contrition and insight. It's just he's a sensitive dude, which is sort of slightly surprising. There are definitely two Tobys. Is he sensitive or is he sensitive after being caught? He's definitely been cut down to size. That is, <laughs> that is true. And that comes across. He's just, he is so quick to, when he's, sort of rationalizing something he'll jump in and go look I'm sorry I'm not saying I didn't do something wrong I know I made a huge mistake I should never like he's very aware of the mistakes that he's made and has not finished punishing himself for it at all you can feel that he is still working that through but he's okay right he served 30 days his family stuck by him like how is his life is it demonstrably different than it was before I think it is I really do I think that 
it's easy to say, oh, he only did 30 days. He could have got so much more. He was in a legal battle for two years. His marriage was in tatters and is still being put back together. His standing in the community was decimated. There's not really much in his life that hasn't been cut down to size enormously. Hmm. And I, it's not for me to say what is a right or wrong sentence for him, but uh, I am so glad that I haven't had to go through that experience because that sounds deeply traumatic and utterly exhausting and, and I don't think he'll ever be the same again. Hmm. So I have another question about Julie. I found myself wondering where she thought all that money was coming from. Was that a question that you had when you were looking at the cuts of this film, looking at the interviews? I mean, she says she was blindsided, yet she also says she was aware. I mean, they took all these trips. He was all of a sudden buying all these extravagant things. We saw during the bust that there was actually, like, barrels on their property, (laughs) like in a shed. So I have questions about that. What about you? Yeah, I think, and, and we do as well as filmmakers, you know, you take people's, you have to take them at face value, but then you also have to, you know, use critical thinking and decide what it is that is your truth. I think that there's maybe a version of, of the edit where we scrutinise Julie's involvement more. There are so many truths, there are so many facts, there are so many pieces of information that you could present. And I think maybe in the end we were lighter on her than we could have been. Because I'm with you, I'm like, oh... So this is all happening in your house whilst you're going on nice holidays and going on trips to Disneyland that you weren't going on before. Totally. <laughs> but we all also know that people see what they want to see. Yeah. This would not be the first marriage in which one person was guilty of transgressions that the other person somehow didn't notice until the very last moment. And, hmm. you know, that's a truth that we've seen again and again. It's a, it's a grey area. I certainly am not able to, to bring out a sheaf of evidence that proves that Julie was in on it. But I, I'm absolutely with you on that. Hmm. <laughs> Just completely no idea. There's whiskey in the house, there's money in the house. Well, I don't know. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk about Pat Melton. He is the other big character in the story. And, you know, if this were a fictional story, he would be like the bad guy who was a nemesis at the same, you know, kind of operating in the same way at the same level that that Toby was. And in some ways, you can kind of make the case that he was because for him, pursuing this case was all about politics, right? Yeah. I mean, it was something that sort of new to me as well, the understanding of, I'm not from around here, you know. Um, So this (laughs) this idea of law enforcement having to get re-elected is kind of nutty. I'm like, oh, wow, that's that's just, that's a lot of your time in order to stay in power, the amount of stuff you need to do whilst trying to do your job. I mean, it's it's sort of runs counter to what you th- think they should be spending their time doing. But I think everything that, that he was doing, even when he was enforcing the law, he had his eye on the stats and on the, and on the cameras and on the exposure. And this case for him was, I think, an opportunity. It was high profile. It was it had a bit of glamour to it, mystery. It was suddenly this guy that, that loved the cameras had a bunch of them pointed at him. And he was like, oh my God, I really, really need to deliver here. Hmm. The way that we saw it was like he was blinded to some of the truths along the way and ended up sort of crossing into waters that were murkier and, you know, a little more treacherous because he pissed a lot of people off. Hmm. And once he decided, right, I'm going to take this on and I'm going to crack this case, I think he bit off quite a lot. And he didn't necessarily at every stage nail it. Were you surprised at the brazenness of how these thefts took place? I mean, it's one thing to, I don't know, 
put a uh, cask or something like down the leg of your pants or something. It's another thing to back your truck up <laughs> to where you work and just roll giant barrels of whiskey into your personal pickup truck. I mean, it was all these crimes just seemed very in the open, right? 100%. That's this world, right? It's all a matter of increments. It's like, uh, this is a theft. There's a slightly bigger theft. It's like, what's the line that you cross? Where does good old boy code just become, you know, being the ringleader of an organized crime network? When does, you know, being light-fingered at the office, as it were, become backing your car up and going, well, I took this much and I took a barrel. And well, I mean, it's sort of an insidious creep. And I think that Toby got caught out going that little bit too far. But yeah, this is a world where this was all possible. And the security was not in place to prevent people from doing this, which is kind of insane. And they had plenty of buyers. Did you look in at all to the folks who were, you know, buying all this whiskey from all these men? I mean, we kind of get allusions to them. Some of them were doctors, some of them were lawyers, judges. You know, they were kind of like, obviously, people with money. What is their culpability? And did you ever think about trying to talk to any of them? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of evidence from the police side of where some of these bottles were going. And lots of, lots of people looked at also as soon as the heat was on. As we've shown in the, in the episodes, it's like they, they were all coming out of the woodwork and, and taking advantage of the amnesty because suddenly it was like, well, this is a bit too hot to handle. Um, in terms of the specific names, yeah, I think there are, there are more. I don't think it was our place to be getting into it. If it went all the way up to something really juicy that was like a household name, I think we couldn't, yeah. probably couldn't have helped ourselves. Um, but in the end, once again, we're just still talking about, you know, a relatively small community even if we are in the state capital there, it's like uh, it's still a sort of a small town vibe. So I think we were happy to stick with doctors, lawyers and country (laughs) club rich types, I think, as Toby puts it. I found myself thinking of all the times that someone has done a favor for me, you know, like maybe hooked me up with something that I didn't have or wasn't able to get, you know, show tickets or, you know, a bottle of wine, something like that. And I'm thinking now, am I unintentionally complicit in something, if not criminal, at least suspect, shady? I mean, there really is this whole world behind the favors and the hookups that people do out here in the in the rest of the world, right? Oh, yeah, you, you are 100% responsible for blurring that line. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're part of the problem. <laughs> but I think that's the thing. I think that we live in a world where being able to do a favor for someone and having a hookup and having an in somewhere is a nice thing. I think that's, that's it's sort of what's established in, in the sort of beginning parts of this story is you're like, this is a world where people want to do each other a favor. I'll hook you up, I'll get you a thing. I know a guy. And it's, there's a point at which, you know, that turns into sort of criminality. But up to a certain level, it's just, it feels like neighborly behavior. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you've got a thing. You're like, I've got a th- I can get you one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm assuming that most of them, when I'm like, you know, people say I can get you tickets to the Hollywood Bowl. It doesn't mean that, you know, someone's getting kneecapped over it, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that from now on, that's for sure, now that I know mm-hmm. it's completely my fault. <laughs> I do want to talk about the style of this episode. All of these stories had kind of a, a distinct style that was threaded together just by the sense of them being fun, by some of the, like, the bold type screen graphics and so forth. But this one really stood out to me. It had a lot of, I don't know, like... It's, it's not derivative. It feels very new, but I found myself being reminded of, you know, like Ocean's Eleven. I found myself being reminded of, you know, any movie that uses freeze frames in a sort of like comedic slash uh, narrative driven way. Just yeah. talk about that. How did you land on the style and how did you decide to execute it? There were a lot of creative forces that sort of fed into that. We had one editor that was really great with bringing up graphics with little sound effects that we really liked. I was like, oh, we got to keep that. And then 
my partner Martin was really into this idea of like big, bold text. And I'm the sort of executor of the graphics on the team. So I sort of take all of those little ideas and sort of synthesize them and be like, here's our bold text. And it's <laughs> usually yellow. I mean, I love yellow. Yeah. It, and it pops against everything and it's really great. But I think the character moments, those sort of freeze frames, like Julie's like, he's a meathead. And then you get the little freeze frame. Finding those moments where you get like a a little tiny soundbite that just sums up someone and goes, goes, whoa, Nelly, here comes, here comes another character. And then the freeze frames, it was really fun creating them. And when we got them right, we'd really know as well. I love Kentucky. I love Frankfurt. I love everything about it. I love the people. I've had several people say, well, I heard Kentucky's uh, such and such with the amount of teeth missing. I've got, I've got all mine. But giving the consistent look and we're constantly like, you know, stealing from each other across mm. different stories, getting to different stages. And along the way, it's like, as soon as we find something good, we want to roll it out across the other episodes as well so that we're beginning to get us, you know, nail our house style. Some of it's mm. predetermined. We've made the decisions before about what we're going to do. And other times we find things in the edit that we're like, oh, we've got to keep doing this. This works beautifully. <laughs> uh, so full disclosure, usually when I talk to people, multiple people who've worked on one thing together, the relationship between those people is very often like, you know, the, the network hooked me up with your production company. And that's kind right. of how we got together. The three of you, I've now talked to all three of you, Derek and Martin and you, all of you have referenced working collaboratively together. How did you guys all get together? And what is that like, having the three of you on a call together, in a room together, kind of bouncing these ideas around? Martin, I've known for 20 years, and we've been working together for most of that on and off. So we have a lot of experience in tag teaming, sharing responsibilities, being honest with each other, giving each other notes, sitting through the screenings, you know, wiping away the tears. Derek is a filmmaker that we work with on other projects that came to us with the initial idea for Heist together. We were the three EPs that sold the show and we're the three creative voices that have final say, Derek being the showrunner and Martin and I being on his left and right-hand side at all stages. So when it comes to like who's directing which episode, yes, we each owned one, but I spent a lot of time working on both of those other episodes and I got a lot of feedback and a lot of help from them on, on mine and it... It's fun working with people. Filmmaking is collaborative and none of us have all the answers. So mm. I'm, I'm lucky to be working with people who I know and trust to all bring something to the table. And that back and forth was, was a real joy. I'm sure you guys looked at dozens and dozens and dozens of stories that could have been potential fits for this. Was the ability to access a bunch of colorful characters one of your filters for how to choose these stories? It's kind of everything. You find the good talker with the eye patch curly teeth walks with a stutter like i want them as weird and out there as possible i want larger than life characters who won't shut up that's what you're looking for yeah. i mean not not everyone has to be like that it doesn't have to be a like a circus but when you find people that in those interviews and you're, and you're vibing and you're like oh okay oh loving this just and you can hear the sound bites and they're delivering them and you're like that's juicy that's juicy so yeah i mean it, it makes an enormous difference I will tell you, though, it is very easy for some filmmakers to go into exploitative territory when they have characters like this that they are featuring in their films. The one thing I will say that I noticed is that all of these interviewees and all of the series had a lot of dignity sort of around who they were and how they presented themselves and what they said. I mean, it just felt very authentic. It didn't feel like you were, you know, trying to get us in on the joke and the joke was them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, the basic truth is people are fascinating. And we did the show beforehand, We Are the Champions, which is about 
obscure oh, competitions. I was going to ask you about that. I loved that show so much. I was so excited to see that you did the cheese rolling one, which is one of my all-time favorite things I've watched <laughs> on Netflix in the last couple of years. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. You know, I think in that there was a potential for poking fun at people. And yes, like there is a tongue-in-cheek quality to the show. But overall, it's we went to these people's worlds and they open up their lives and they were sincerely passionate about what they did. And, and you just let these people talk and you're like, well, she's amazing. I mean, and everyone is different. Everyone is so incredibly, acutely, wildly, wonderfully different. And you sort of learn that over and over again, making these sorts of things. Go into a world and you're sat there, you're like, well, I haven't done this before. Check out this one. Hmm. And we do, we do love them and, and, like, and we're, we're nothing without them. So God love people. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't sound like the biggest revelation, but, you know, thank God for people. They're fascinating. Yeah, and, and being fascinating, you can do that with dignity. It doesn't have to be uh, something that we're making fun of. And I, I really do love that. And I will say that also really came through in We Are the Champions. I mean, if you listeners, if you haven't watched that, check out Netflix, check it out. You'll watch the cheese episode and then you'll be in. It's really, really incredible. Um, music choices in this episode, they really stood out to me. Who did the music direction? Did you pick sort of the aesthetic around the music here? I am very driven by music. So yeah, I was responsible for quite a lot of the overall vibe. We had great music supervisors. We had worked with a company called Score a Score, who we've since worked three jobs with because it just worked very well. And they would present us with a real treasure trove of things. There are some, some great companies out there that have amazing vintage back catalogs from defunct studios that have been bought up that no one's ever going to listen to, that they've dusted off. And you can get much more affordable prices than stuff that's recognizable. But they're all gems and they all sound authentic. And we, we all of us, me, Martin, Derek, all love vintage music and that authentic sound of 50s, 60s, 70s, rock and roll, etc. And to find things that, that maybe aren't deeply familiar, but have that sort of, uh, I feel comfortable with this. This is, feels like something I should know, which is great because we got to play with a lot of really fun things that also were like lyrically on point. Like mm. we get some of these playlists through and we're like, we're looking for something that, that speaks to, you know, to being on the run or we're looking for something that, something that speaks to, you know, money. And, you know, we had the first track in, the first song in, in the whiskey one was called The Devils in the Whiskey. And it was like, just absolutely, we're like, well, that's going in. And a lot of the creative decisions that we made, certainly, like, I feel very comfortable saying, I'm going to put this song at this point, and, and it helps me visualize. I'm like, we need to get at that act. We need to open with this, and we need to have earned it. Mm. And being able to place the right cues and right needle drops give the episodes a shape for me and I and I, I can start to sort of work around them and it's not just you know how to sell the thing that's already been done it's like sometimes it's the leading creative choice in that moment I absolutely adore working the music hmm. it's transformative and can be the guiding light in a lot of situations. So are you guys making another season of Heist? Because that's something like I can ask you or not. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you can ask me. I don't have an answer. Okay, because I, I would really love to see more. And I'm curious to know if you have stories that you're dying to tell. Oh, we definitely have stories we're dying to tell. Potential stories for the first season that didn't happen for certain reasons. We have new things. We're maybe even looking at you know, we, have, we already have a very strange format. I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen three stories told over six episodes before. We're looking at, you know, our, 
do we want to pick slightly juicier stories and tell them over three episodes? And we're sort of weighing up what would be the best way to keep delivering the goods. There are some stories, there are some career criminal stories that are extremely exciting Mm. that we would love to be able to tell and stuff that's just super complicated and that we can really sort of settle in and deliver on. I think having a slightly sort of elastic format might work really well. If we get something that feels more like a bite-sized little rock and roll slap in the face, we could do a a one-episode thing. You know, and obviously now we're sort of, as we hoped we would be, like, hi, can we be the heist guys? Come to us, come to us, bring your... You know, did did you do something you really regret back in the 80s? Come talk to us. (laughs) Did you do something? Can you talk to us? And will everybody in your life also talk to us? And are they interesting? (laughs) I do find it interesting how many people are motivated to talk about these things. We talked about champions. Like, obviously, when you're like, hey, we want to make a documentary about your yo-yoing championship, they're like, what do you want? I will do anything. Like It was a joy to work with these people who are just so open and so generous. With, with Heist, you're literally going, hey, you remember that thing that you did that you're still super conflicted about, that your wife hates you over, that was the worst time of your entire life? Do you want to talk to us about that? And it's hard. Hmm. But I do think there's, a, there's a, a real appeal for people that are looking for the catharsis. And over again, you're like, oh, she responded? She said yes? Hmm. Wow. Okay. And I think that if, if you present yourselves as filmmakers with a certain level of integrity and empathy and patience and I tell you what in Derek's case tenacity because he is a bulldog Mm. he is incredible at staying on people and going hey just wanted to check in again just in case and eventually people feel comfortable enough to go oh this is my chance to sort of settle the score process something have a bit of catharsis get some stuff off my chest be better prepared to move on and I think it's sort of an honour in, in a way sometimes when people are able to sort of go, OK, let's do it. Let's have it out. I'll tell you about the time that I made all these terrible decisions. Hmm. I really hope, and I'm being sincere here, that the three of you kind of get to do whatever format you want to do for your upcoming projects. I, I do think it's really smart to break through the this has to be this many episodes convention or you have to have three stories instead of four. I think that it is smart and, it, and obviously you know sort of what's worth including and what isn't. And, um, you know, I really hope you guys get that creative opportunity. I think that you've earned it with this documentary. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was definitely weird when we landed on that. We were like, oh, we can't, it's five stories. We can't just do an hour. What are these films? Well, maybe that. And then we're sort of sitting there. We're like, okay, so we've made the decision then. This is weird. Let's see if it works. But it was fun. It felt different than making three films Mm. because we were looking towards a sort of a successive televisual experience. But it also gave us some great focus sort of finding that cliffhanger inflection point in every story and really sort of shaping stuff around it. And I think it was a great exercise and it was it was a lot of fun. Well, if you agree to not tell Derek and Martin I said this. No, I'm just kidding. It's in a podcast. I'm on the record. <laughs> this was my favorite story of the series, The Bourbon King and Heist. Thank you so much, Nick, for giving me a peek into your process and behind the curtain of how you made it. My pleasure. My absolute pleasure. It's been great. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Nick Frew. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Cocaine Cowboys, Kings of Miami. 
You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>